Hello and welcome to Shakespeare on Screen, a podcast where I meet up with friends to chat about adaptations of the Bard. I'm Jamie Kelly, the host, and with me again is Alex. Hi, Alex. Hello, hello. Good to be back again, again. And we are back to resume our discussion on the BBC's Shakespeare's adaptation of Henry VI, or rather the York Tetralogy, I'm sorry, directed again by Jane Howell. And um, I think this one had a different producer, though, and that's part of the interesting little side thing. But Jane Howell continuing to direct the the plays that we're covering Henry VI, Part Three. So, I really, really love this play. I, it is easily my personal favorite of the Henry VI plays. And while I don't think at all it's, it's one of Shakespeare's masterpieces, it's not. There's plenty of, there's a bit too much metaphoring going along, metaphoring and similes going along in this play. See, that's not what I accuse this play of. But go on. Something other people do? No, I think this play gets a bad rap. Oh, and I should state for the record, I also, I love this play. I'll debate you that part two is better, but still (laughs) a fantastic play. But where this one really, I think, loses people beyond that it's a history and Shakespeare's (laughs) histories have a um, higher barrier to entry than his <laughs> tragedies and comedies where this play in particular henry the sixth part three and i'll love part of richard third in there as well they cram a lot into it yeah they, so i'll let you get back to why this is the greatest play but <laughs> i think it's worth noting at the top here Henry the Sixth Part Three is a very strange play in terms of its structure. Now, when we were talking about Part Two, we pointed out, or at least I did, that you, know, you have your three focal points of Humphrey, you know, mm-hmm. Cade, and then York. Henry the Sixth Part Three has that more explicitly with two focal points of York and uh, Henry himself. He finally gets to be mm-hmm. part of his own play. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> So the the original title for this play, because these plays weren't titled Henry VI, Part 1, 2, 3, so the original title for this one was The True Tragedy of Richard, Duke of York, and Good King Henry. Uh, So very explicitly you have, these are our two characters. They share the title the same way, you know, Romeo and Juliet and Troy Mm -hmm. and Cressida and Antony and Cleopatra do, sort of. And spoilers, York <laughs> dies at the end of Act One. Yep. And I think that is a bit of a barrier because once you get past Act One, your main focal points become Henry still and York's eldest Edward, later mm-hmm. Edward the Fourth. But neither of them are strong enough to carry a play. Well, that is that is an issue with this play. I mean, that that is um, and that's something I've thought about, and that's something that 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 is fascinating and capturing just the tragedy of the Wars of the Roses is it's all these big figures clashing with one another, 
And one of the reasons why, for all of the Henry VI trilogy, I would argue, is that they're plays desperately in search of a protagonist, and no one can really mount up to be the protagonist. Hmm. I mean, you've got people that are close to being the protagonist. You've got Talbot basically being the protagonist of part one. You've got York basically being the protagonist of part two. But neither of them are really in the play so much, and the plot is not so anchored on them that they are the protagonist. And arguably, Henry VI is the protagonist, but he's such a of part three, but he isn't an active participant. He is, for, in fact, arguably his only plot significance other than his death is in the first scene of the play. Afterwards, Actually, all he does is just cry and observe with horror at what's happening. But, as we've discussed before when discussing part one and two, that is also his great sin, and that is tragedy, is that he cannot be, will himself to be a king and to be the central protagonist, in essence. That is fair. I do like your point that these three plays are... Yeah, plays in search of a protagonist. It's a great way of thinking about it. Um, as I said, I think Henry yeah, not only gets the title of this play, but he mm-hmm. does have, like, active's not the right word, but he has a larger role in this one. I think this is his best play by Absolutely. far. Peter uh, Benson continuing to do an amazing job. Um, one interesting thing I, I was thinking about uh, while reviewing this play is that yeah, what does Henry do in this pretty much throughout the play is he he abdicates his role. He mm-hmm. gives up the, the crown, sort of, uh, in scene one. He gives it up again when he's captured. He gives himself up. He gives it up to Warwick and, and George. Whoever he could give power to, uh, Margaret and Clifford in Act mm-hmm. 2, whoever he can give power to, he gives power to. And I started looking at this play through that lens, and it becomes just like part two, is all about what is power and mm-hmm. different ways people control power. Part three is all about giving it up, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Arguably, the one person then, why I did full disclosure, for I'm I'm living with this play very much because I'm attempting to do, well, not attempting, I'm working on a graphic novelization of this play with wonderful Italian artist Jacob Ambrosowitz. They are brilliant. They are doing an amazing job with the art, and I abridged the play and am adapting it for comics. So I've been living with this play for a lot, a long time, but watching this, I was joking earlier before we started recording, but even though I'm living with this play for a year, watching it performed, it still got to me. Uh, There's so much raw pathos, and that's one of the reasons what attracts me so much to this play is... I mean, for anyone that's looking to fill the, the void of Game of Thrones, I know the Henry ad is better from a writing quality-wise, but if you want the same similar experience to Game of Thrones, go to the York Tetralogy, because this has all the intrigue, battles, and the raw emotions. Henry VI Part Three is, I think, where... Shakespeare really has come into his craft as a writer and the emotions he brings out. Now, 
some of the scenes are heavy-handed. The very we'll we'll touch on the very infamous scene of the son and the father, which is absolutely insanely heavy-handed. It and is, yet, although no more so than the uh, the garden scene from part one, or even the. Um, Simcox scene from part two. Each of these parts have their heavy-handed metaphor. I've come to peace with that. I don't hate the mm-hmm. father. I don't hate it as either I used to. because it's just like it, it's a it's a challenge. And honestly, compared to compared to the garden scene, which I think is definitely the worst of those three that you just listed. Yes. Like that is in some ways like I get the point. Like it's a very obvious point. But it's the point that has to be made. And yes, yeah. let's. I think it's worth we're talking and talking about this because you mentioned the pathos, and I think that yeah, this maybe goes over the top. But in the same vein, there's a certain brilliance to this scene, which uh, yeah, to compare it to the artist scene, you don't get. And that is so. You know, for for those who don't know, just as quickly set up the scene, it's Henry gives up power as he does to Clifford and Margaret and he goes and he sits on a hill and in my second favorite Shakespeare's soliloquy of all time he talks about how great it would be if he weren't a king but were a, a shepherd and it's this beautiful pastoral soliloquy and then immediately after that a I can never remember the order let's say it's a son enters Yes. dragging a dead body only to discover that he just killed his father and then a father enters dragging a dead body only to discover he kills his son and obviously the, that scene itself is the metaphor for the wars of the roses itself that mm-hmm. you have soldiers on the opposite sides they have no idea what they're fighting for and they end up killing their own family and the way it's written is melodramatic and over the top and kind of ridiculous until you realize that this is framed by Henry, that we're watching the scene through Henry watching the scene. And so what you're really seeing play out, they might as well be goats because you are watching Henry's guilt and his mm-hmm. torment play because out. This, it is the embodiment. It is a literal manifestation of his guilt. It is the embodiment of what he sees power has brought to to him exactly what, what he has brought to the realm is his own sin also though that is his sin and as much as he he both fancies himself and he is presented as holy would he were to assert himself which margaret wants him to do plenty of times like knight your son and like stand up with us and it's like i don't want to do that it's like well then go away <laughs> Yeah, but, and once you start to see this play through that lens, through Henry's mm-hmm. lens, at least when you see the scenes he's in, it, I think it makes it more interesting. As though Shakespeare is really adopting Henry's, Edward's, and Margaret's, and York's, whoever is our focal point at any given point in the story and Richard, uh, he's adopting their voices through the action, not just through their dialogue. And I think that's, I'm probably reading too much into it, but you can feel the difference in the scenes. You have these Mm -hmm. 
melodramatic Henry scenes, these triumphant Edward scenes, the bellicose Margaret scenes. Yeah. I think that it's wonderful because it, it, it paints much clearer picture. In a way, it's a shame. One of the many reasons why it's a shame this play isn't that popular is because it's the perf- it's one of the perfect antidotes, even more than Henry VI Part One is, to Henry V being a war propaganda play. Because if, and it's very easy, I mean, we have the Olivier movie, for goodness sakes. Henry V can absolutely be a, a war is glorious story and play. And that's always a dangerous message. That's always going to be a dangerous message. Henry VI Part Three, with that incredibly heavy-handed scene, is in, extremely makes it explicitly clear that no matter how much rah-rah Edward gives about winning Towton, you're never supposed to regard any of the battles as exhilarating or as you are are forced by Shakespeare to recognize the actual price of this war. This isn't a good war of warring against the French or foreigners. This is a war against brother, against father and son, against brothers, families, a world, a nation divided. That is powerful. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's interesting because this play is not free of propaganda. I think even more heavy-handed oh. than the, the father and son scene is towards the end when they trot Richmond, a.k.a. Yeah. Seven, on stage, and Henry VI blesses him, calling him England's hope, and basically turns to Cameron and says, here is our Messiah. Yeah. Love him. So this play is absolutely. He does say like, "Why do you listen to me when he is here?" This play is absolutely not without its propaganda. But you're you are correct that it is so different how war, how civil war is depicted compared to French war in both Henry V and Henry VI Part One. And I think there's there's a couple of different elements to that that it, you know the the wars in France were supposed to be more noble. Um, you know, side tangent that might take us in an interesting place is um, so there's a book Women of Will by Tina Packer I'm not sure if you've read it but she charts the primary women in Shakespeare and she approaches it from an actor's and director's perspective which makes it interesting but on this particular subject she notes the rhetoric that Margaret uses particularly in the Molehill speech and how it's meant to be seen as vile and how everything she represents, as York points out, is abominable. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you look at Henry V's speech after taking her floor, and he's talking about essaying the the women of her floor. If they don't open the gates, he will go full Viking on them. Mm-hmm. And that's our hero. In yeah. the propaganda version, now, of course, you have you know, versions of the play like uh, Kenneth Branagh, which show and highlight the, the darker side, as we talked about mm-hmm. way back then. But primarily, if Henry V is a propaganda play, then we are meant to condone his strength in that moment, while 
villainizing Margaret, basically the same thing. And I think that's that's a really powerful point, and it kind of illustrates how we are supposed to view Margaret and how we can kind of reclaim her as a character. Hmm. Well, that's a that might be a great starting off point to get into some of the plot or or and performances. Although we've already done an early praise. I want to go back and maybe we'll go a little bit scene by scene, but we're just thematically scene by scene as we go through the characters. So one of the things I love about this play, just going in and to allude to something you touched upon, but okay, I'll start with this. The opening scene is one of the best examples of why I think, okay, Shakespeare's gotten his craft now. Because what he does from this play to many plays afterwards of the first scene, you establish everything you know, need to know about the plot of this play and the motivation of the characters. And that's one of the reasons why I'm hopeful that when my graphic novel will be able to stand on its own. And you won't need to read my hopeful eventual adaptations of Henry VI Part One and Two, and Richard the Third. Is that everything you need to know is in the first scene? That York is the rightful heir to the throne, and Warwick and his three sons are there to support him. And okay, we never touched that on Henry VI Part Two. One of the the few genuine changes Howell did. did for Henry VI Part Two and Three, that I'm all for, is including George much earlier than he appears in the actual text of the of Henry VI Part Three. Did she? Oh yes, yeah. George is I not in, like he basically just shows up right before Towton. He's like before then, like he's not in the play and he's not at all in Part Two. He just shows up in Part Three. Like right before Towton. That's interesting. I'm gonna have to go back to the text. I didn't catch that. So the last like, few times, like this is a play worth through the the BBC one. Huh. Okay. So so just including George and making him be much more of a presence from the get go makes us feel much more familiar with him. And so when he betrays Edward halfway through the play, it's much more shocking. After all, we've been through with with George as well. It's a very good right call. I, I agree, because I think George is probably the weakest part of part three. Mm. The and so, sorry, no, I will get to it. I don't want to derail things. <laughs> so with the opening scene, we get what York wants. Wark is there to say, like, I will absolutely always support the cause of York and you, York. You are my friend. And then we get Henry VI, his introduction is one of the most perfect introductions, and Peter Benson perfectly crushes it okay. in just how effete he is, even in that opening scene of of just, well, his allies are like, well, well okay, let's get, get him, kill him right now. It's like, but no, he's got, he's really popular in London. Words are what I'll do to scare him off the throne. I just like think that. that's like. You've got to be kidding me. Like, words, a stern... At the same time, though. Wagging the you, finger. And and also, though, you get... 
I do say you get Clifford much more having seen his final speech in part two. But he just says at the beginning, like, I will never ally and accept York as the rightful heir to the throne because he killed my father. And that's the motivation of pretty much all of Lancastrian allies is like, yeah, okay, York, you might be technically the rightful heir to the throne, but like you killed our family, so we're never going to support you. Yeah, I think what you get from, I agree though, you get such a clear picture from each character. Now I'll say, I think you get that as well in part two, but part three does it better. With Henry, though, not only does it clearly set him up, even if you haven't read anything else, as the weak king, in a sense, Mm -hmm. but you do get a bit more fire from him here than you do in anywhere else until his death. Mm. Um, His First, he admits, as an aside, (laughs) that he basically agrees with York that... I know. Title, I know not what to say. My title is weak, which is fantastic. But after that, he basically still threatens in that way that, you know, if this war continues, everyone's going to die. Mm-hmm. And I, it's not so much a threat as it is, you know, part of his prophesying. But at the same time, there's more power behind that than anywhere else that you've seen him thus far. Mm hmm. And at least, like, clearly, even though he doesn't really care about being king, he still is, is like, you think I'm just going to give up what, what, what is my birthright? And, like, what I've been for all these years? No, I'm not going to do that. And but, then he does. And, yeah, and then he does. And then, and coupling on, even though it feels like two scenes, it is still one scene, we also get the introduction to... I think the person who is doing the most to be the protagonist and certainly feels like the protagonist because every scene she steals, Margaret, played magnificently by Julia Foster. I mean, not that she wasn't great in the first two films, but this is the, her biggest one to shine. Where she I would gets argue Richard at third, but certainly she has a lot to do in this one. And... Well, we. I'm not saying that she isn't a big figure, and it's so important for her to be in there, but in Richard III, but in this play, like that, that's where she is the she wolf of France, where she is the dynamic figure. She's the one that more or less instigates so much of the plot of theoretically, okay, York and Lancaster are reconciled. Margaret's like, I don't think so. I'm not accepting that at all. Yeah, but the funny thing about that and, scene, so that's that scene two, after they, they make this truce, so they, they make a deal, Henry can stay king, but then the crown goes to um, Edward, York's Edward. After that, we don't see, we see Margaret getting angry, we see her and Clifford teaming up, but you don't see Margaret breaking the truce. That scene is reported from the York perspective, where on the other side, Margaret's counterpoint, Richard, is basically scheming and had just convinced his family to do the same. So what's interesting, Margaret gets the the fall because she's the one who does it. Richard would have done it himself. Yeah. It, 
two seconds well, later. York would have done it. That's York, the thing. Well, yes. And so, and so part of what I adore about this play, and definitely it is enhanced by absolutely by. As uh, that's going to be the main theme when we talk about Richard the Third, for how Howells Richard the Third, just like, just like the Hollow Crowns Henry the Fifth, it's so much better if it's the fourth part of of the story instead of just an isolated story. But York was about to break his oath. There is no like other than Rutland and Richmond. There's no purely good character in this play. And although we can talk about Clifford in just a bit, but just about no character is wholly evil. Or even when they are, you understand why they are the way they are. Which is what I'd say about Clifford. I agree. Clifford absolutely has motive, and so mm-hmm. does Richard, and so does I mean, Margaret. Everyone who does, I guess, objectively terrible things in this play have clear motives, which just proves that Shakespeare is better than some of his contemporaries who weren't big on motives. Oh, Still, I, I, you can't really call Clifford a, a great character. Um, I think that... Oh, I think he's a great character for being this magnificent embodiment of like how much what rage does to you and revenge and okay this is a good point to talk about a bit of one of my theories that i still have yet to make an essay about but this particular bbc film is a great companion piece to howell's other bbc shakespeare film titus andronicus because both plays i've said before uh to alex and other people Henry VI Part Three and and Titus Andronicus are are Shakespeare's true revenge plays, not Hamlet. Hamlet, yes, structurally from plot wise is a revenge story, but Hamlet's more a parody of a revenge story, really. Kind of, yeah. It's, it's four hours of contemplating the meaning of life, and yeah, plot wise it's revenge, but. Whereas Henry VI Part Three and and Titus Andronicus, there is nothing but revenge and the consequences of revenge. But what I've said before, there's two types of revenge story. There is the cautionary revenge story, which I would, or I should first say, no. First, there is the cathartic revenge story, which is that you feel a delight in watching this per- the character take revenge. And the best example of that I always turn to is John Wick. It doesn't matter that John Wick kills 200 people in that movie. They killed his puppy. So it's okay for us to watch him kill 200 people. Same with the flip side of that is the cautionary revenge story, where no matter how much a revenge may seem justified, it still is wrong in the end. And that is the case of Sweeney Todd. It doesn't matter that Sweeney Todd was wrongfully imprisoned and was robbed of a family life. That doesn't give him the excuse to trick people into eating other human beings. No, that's still wrong. And 
it is my own belief that and that's one of the reasons why Titus is a bit squeaky and icky as a play is that you are meant to be with Titus in his revenge. And it's weird to want to in, want to support someone who forces his enemies to eat her own children. Spoilers, I guess, for Titus Andronicus. Whereas the cautionary revenge story is absolutely prevalent in in Henry VI Part Three, of that Clifford announces from the beginning of the play, and if you've seen Part Two, he made this vow. He his father was murdered, and so he wants revenge. What does revenge bring him? It's him killing an innocent child. And what does that beget? That begets. And eventually, Margaret wants revenge for her son being deposed. That leads to York dying the most grisly of fates. And what does that beget? It, be, it begets the sons of York swearing vengeance and them eventually killing Margaret's son in front of her. And meanwhile, revenge and rage creates turns Richard of, of Gloucester into a monster. That's all fair. And My so, only point was that, yes, that Clifford is more of a character in that he represents uh, the, the rage. Clifford is a character in the same way Chiron and Demetrius are characters in that they absolutely make sense for their plot and what they symbolize, but they're not complex characters as you find in oh, Richard no. or York or Margaret. No, 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 they're not. But, I mean, well, personally, I will say that not to comment too much on Chiron and Demetrius, but like they're just, just like Aaron. It's just like it's kind of hard to believe that such people can exist. I'm just they're so Saturday morning cartoon villain evil. Whereas Clifford, and we've seen him weep over his father in part two, it's more believable that a Clifford can exist. Now, it doesn't justify at all what he does, and that's the tragedy of that character, is that his rage has blinded him and turned him into this horrific monster. So, yeah, I guess we could talk about that right now. Well, if we put Clifford's aside and turn to you know, the other two horrific monsters, uh, Margaret and, and Richard, um, on Margaret, I... That's sort of when we do this one more time. In that same chapter in uh, Tina Packer's book, mm-hmm. she she makes this comment about the molehill speech. So this is Margaret and her forces have captured York, and instead of killing him right away, they basically torment him first. Yeah. No. Um, and no, then they, he goes. They, they, they do. Yeah. And then he gives this long, horrifically beautiful speech first. You know, cursing out Margaret, this is the she-wolf of France, and then turning to kind of sexist women should be you know, mm-hmm. beautiful and pity, pitiful. Um, I can't remember the exact words. And so uh, Tina Pecker in her book comments, Margaret could have killed York right away during the speech, but she, she lets him go on, um, showing that she doesn't have this bloodless urge like Clifford does 
And then when she finally does kill her, and this is Tina Packer talking about her playing Margaret. And so she says, when he finally, she finally does kill York, it's because she can't let him talk anymore because she can't bear to think about what she has done. That, you know, Packer's argument is Margaret is affected the same way Northumberland is after York's speech. Northumberland Mm -hmm. basically turns to York's side in the end. And Margaret does too, but expresses it by stabbing him instead. Um, And I don't fully agree with the assessment, but what it does kind of force you to do is to humanize Margaret, I think, more than a surface reading of the play does. Because she's an amazing character for being strong, for being Mm -hmm. not Henry, for being able to take charge. But throughout the well, the, really, the whole tetralogy, you, you have these amazing humanizing moments with her and, and seeing yeah. her not as the kind of killing as force. The she- seeing her, yeah, as the Yeah, the Shiro fans, the tiger with a woman's hide type of thing. Seeing her as what does it mean for Margaret, the person, to be doing the things that she's doing? Well, I mean, part of that is the journey that we've been on for this cycle. And um, to also allude a little bit to the actress, full disclosure, we did once did a read through of of the Henry VI trilogy, and the actress who played our Margaret, she captured what Julia Julia Foster does is that is that you've seen from the woman you first meet in part one, part two, this naivete or this the softer sides of Margaret are burned away through heartbreak and the, and Henry's ineffectiveness of his King and her becoming King, letting that softness go away. And she's become this flinty warrior queen. And I understand like that. Where is the humanity in her? Well, you can find it in that. What's her motivation? Why is she, does she do all the sadistic acts that she does? It's all in the cause of her son. That's why she does what she does. It's not for her own sake necessarily. It's all in memory of her son and for the cause of her son that makes her do what she does. And, but no, at the same time though, and why? And so that makes it her wonderfully complex gray character of that she's doing this for love, like Cersei Lannister. Everything I do, I do for my children. And Sorry, I don't know that one. Shut up, Alexa. <laughs> well, I think you're you're right on that, and she is a complex character. And while I still want to hold on to my position that these plays are better individually, Margaret. Yeah, it's hard to argue that she doesn't benefit from the tetralogy view. Um, I think she absolutely works in part three as a play as an individual, especially because yes. of, she makes that clear right from her entrance in part three. You bastard, you have disinherited our son. This mm-hmm. will not stand. And that carries her through the entire play. Mm-hmm. But yeah, as you said, the the arc that she goes on, even you know, going back to part one and then her tiny bit there, but then through part two, Margaret, she doesn't let anyone t- 
tell her what to do. Um, and well, at the same time though, and progressiveness, the Lancastrians, the Lancastrians never question that Margaret is their leader. They never do. Yes, yeah. Clifford is, is 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 part of their support. So is Warwick. So is so is Oxford. So is Somerset. But they never ever question that like Margaret's our leader. And they never question her be being in the in the soldier's uniform and fighting with them. They never question it. It's true. She's also not only the Yorkists that like call attention to the fact that you're a woman in a battlefield. You're a woman in armor. That is very true. Um... And at the same time, though, I mean, people clamor about the evil of Lady Macbeth, but that's one. Okay, so I will admit the actor playing Clifford, he does a much more cold-blooded Clifford than I would personally approach the material but just that cold-bloodedness is still chilling of just his big revenge he kills a little boy yeah and it's a very and quiet scene in uh, Howell's the, version and, and the great touch in Howell's direction is to have the sword like him drench the blade the bloody blade on his face and wear it as war paint that he still has on for the next scene He, yeah. He paints himself in a child's blood. But at the same time, you don't see anything really. And yes, I mean, eight, 1980s BBC, you're not going to show anything remotely close to child killing on screen. But I think that how it really played into whatever restrictions she was working with in that case, because any modern production would go the Game of Thrones route and really mm. play up that scene. Um, but I I like the, the the quiet moments. I like that Clifford is in that moment extremely restrained, uh, cold blooded. Yes, but he is very in control both before and after killing Rutland. Um, and it, it lends a, a nice touch to it. I mean, part of the thing, for a play that has the future Richard Third, like Richard only does one thing that is genuinely could even be considered evil. And compared to what so many other people do in the play, okay, two things now that I think about it. But he is not the worst of the bunch in the play at all. Yes and no. He is not in his actions, but because of the soliloquies and Henry VI's prophecy at the end, Mm -hmm. those do paint him in the negative light that follows him to Richard III. Now, for taking a world where... Richard III as a play doesn't exist, and we're taking Henry VI Part Three as its own, and maybe Shakespeare didn't have a plan to write Richard III after this. <laughs> I think it still accomplishes the propaganda that we talked about last time that he was drawn from. Um, so Henry VI at the end uh, tells, describes Richard's birth using very bestial iconography, mm-hmm. 
that is lifted directly from a 16th century text. It's Hall's, don't remember the name of the book, but it's Edward Hall's text that describes Richard III in those exact same words that Shakespeare uses, and this was part of the Henry VII propaganda. Yep. So because of that, and because, you know, yes, killing the king pretty bad although he wasn't king at the time uh killing a child well he wasn't the only one involved in that his actions aren't as bad as others mm-hmm. it's the betrayal it's his statement you know i don't have a father i don't have brothers his disconnecting himself from any human tie that's what makes richard the ultimate villain of this play in a sense oh. Well, no, there's a great foreboding by the end that, you know, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. But and I don't want to skip over Margaret's big crowning scene of evil. Although you've already touched on it, I want to touch a little bit about, about oh, please, it. But, go ahead. But just um, that you can see, even in the unabridged version, which they made much more intentional in in the in the hollow crown adaptation of this play, but Richard does make a transformation in the play from being a zealot for the house of York to being this secret evil person in the wolf in the fold. Yeah. And why does that transformation happen? Well, that's a great discussion. We'll have to have in in a bit. Of why and but so boy oh boy the scene with with julia foster as as margaret when and bernard hill both crush it with that scene and bernard hill three wonderful performances and he gets his moment to shine in terms of bringing on the emotions at the end of just the horror and soul crush feeling of the horror of having lost a son and being forced to put on that paper crown. And just Margaret of just this utter sadism and utter delight at watching her enemy suffer and being incredulous that he's not suffering enough and just wants to add on until he'll cry before her. It is like people clamor at Lady Macbeth. This is pure evil. This is magnificent, pure evil. And yet I, I do say with the caveat that like, you understand why she is th- this way. You absolutely understand her motivations and what she's doing. It's just cruelty. It's wanton cruelty. But it's so ice cold. It's so wicked. It's and Foster just plays the gamut of being like joyful at the same time, like angry and infurious, and then even taken aback when York finally explodes at her. Wonderful staging, wonderful direction by everyone. It's it's fantastic and. Really, I'd say in comparison with the book interpretation of 
what fosters motivation for stabbing York is is that she's incredulous that Northumberland's is that York's work words actually persuade Northumberland. See that I don't agree with either. I I don't pretend to be able to read into to Margaret's um, motives, but I, I don't think she would care at all about Northumberland one way or the other. Ultimately, she knew she was going to kill him. I guess oh yeah. Well, the, no, the no, only no. question is, yeah, why didn't she do it right away? Why does she let him go on as long as she does? Unless you want to write that off as theater be theater and Shakespeare <laughs> needed to write that great speech. Um, yeah, I either either way, I think that Foster, I agree, completely brings it out in her performance. This you know, Margaret has three mate well three key scenes two huge scenes in this play this one mm-hmm. and her final scene basically mm-hmm. um and she absolutely crushes it in both i just wish how oh, well i i think there's another one that we'll we'll talk touch it well we can talk about it now then i was just before we close this one there's that last line of the molehill scene at the end of act one that if i were cutting the play if i were making a cut of the play i would cut and I, I really wished Howell did because it's such a hard line to deliver because it's not very good. So at the end of the scene, they kill, they decapitate York, and and Margaret says something to the effect of put his put his head on you know above the city gate so York can overlook York. Mm-hmm. And it just I don't, that last line always bothers me. And <laughs> because she's supposed to say it, and the way Foster delivers it, and the way you're kind of supposed to deliver that line is just very gleefully. But it's not a very good menacing line. It's, the emotions are undercut by the words themselves, and that always bothers me. I should add also this that the idea that York would have a paper crown and be beheaded at York, Shakespeare did not come up with that. That actually did happen in history. Fair. Although I should also mention that in real life, Rutland was was the second oldest child, and he was 17 when he died. And Richard was seven, give or take? Yeah. Okay, so, all right. History Corner with Jamie, yes. So this play is is probably one of the most fast and loose with with history, although we'll get to Richard III and just how much that also. But for this one, at least, like, it's more, like, genuine fast and loose in terms of so much for Richard III, the Fast and Loose is just with character assessment of, of what happened. Pretty much everything happened. It's just, ooh, I'm Richard. I always wanted to do this. I'm nothing but evil, which I don't think is completely true for real history. Whereas um, with this one, it's it's Shakespeare adapts 10 years of history because Edward IV was, had been king for 10 years before he was deposed briefly by Warwick and then and then was out of power for a year before coming back into power in at um, Tewkesbury so it was a full there's about basically 11 to 12 years of history that's adapted into one play that seemingly takes place over a year and yeah Richard III the future Richard III, he only fought in Barnet and Tewkesbury. He absolutely did not fight in Towton. He was like eight in Towton. 
And he, in fact, he was he grew up Warwick's ward. So. So no. No. But I mean, horrible histories made made the joke before me. Like I didn't kill the Duke of Somerset. I was five. <laughs> yeah, and that's I mean, again, Henry the Sixth propaganda. But one of the more brilliant things Shakespeare did was flip the ages of Rutland and Richard, so you can have not just the horrific, pitiful scene of Rutland, but have that as the key motivator for York's emotions in the molehill scene. And then, yes, the the sons are motivated by the death of their father, but especially Richard seems to be more motivated by the death of Rutland, um, which doesn't play well into his character as the I don't care about my brothers, but it's a nice little human touch. Well, no, that's part of, I think, so the journey that Richard goes on. So let's talk about the character of Richard a little bit. And that's a perfect transition into talking about him and where he is. Is that, and you can see it in Hal's presentation, he says in dialogue how much what motivates him from that point on of being the zealot of the Yorkists is the memory of his father and his brother Rutland. They're basically the only two people he ever genuinely loved. And even in Richard III, he brings up the memory of Rutland fondly when Margaret is talking trash about him. So losing the only two people that you ever loved is a great motivator for him becoming, like Clifford, consumed by vengeance. And so what happens to Richard, you asked earlier? Note that really the first time Henry Richard gives an evil monologue that actually I'm a bad guy, it's after Edward has become king. And it's after he has achieved at least part of his revenge by killing, by killing Clifford, or at least seeing Clifford dead and ma- defiling his corpse. Yeah. And so from there, and it's a little hint for future reference to Richard III, of that Richard is a man defined by action. And that's what Ron Cook goes for. He's a man of action. Entirely, that's all he does. The minute, and when it's really just peace with the final shot, the whole purpose of Pete, of the final shot, and his earlier speech, like, I'm not made for amorative, I don't know the exact words, but like, I'm not shaped to be a lover made the court a looking glass yeah and so he without revenge without war what is he because that's the only thing he's good at and so in essence he's his own worst enemy and the enemy of his family because without something to do it's like okay gonna go out and try to be king myself yeah, but not but only that, not only is it after the, the war is done, it's after Edward has basically chosen his his queen. It's, it's mm-hmm. after the, the Lady Grey stuff. And so both George and Richard have the same reaction of, well, 
Yeah, I guess with the the line secure, there's no hope in hell for me in this York family when it comes to getting power. I'm going to go strike out and find it on my own. George literally leaves to go marry Warwick's daughter, and uh, Richard announces that he's going to start scheming to get rid of, of everyone. But I think that is... And again, within the context of this play, because yes, he does have his small bit in part two, and you get to see him as the dutiful son and the strong fighter, killing Somerset and all that. But it's within the context of this play that you do see those beats of proud to be carrying the York banner and pushing for war in Act One, the zealot revenge-driven soldier in part in, in Act 2 and then in Act 3 you get the turn um, and as you said it's because there is no more war to be had but it's also this very human what am I going to do? I've, I've essentially been so single- you know, myopically focused on mm-hmm. what is immediately in front of me. First, getting my father to be king, then getting revenge. What am I going to do? And I think that soliloquy, which, to be honest, I think the the 3.1 soliloquy, I think it's 3.1, maybe 3.2, sorry, uh, in Henry the Sixth Part Three is dampened by the Richard III soliloquy because the opening of Richard oh, yeah. III is so much well, more um, known feels, and so much, yeah. But it's basically it like the cycle. first draft of, 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 of Now is the Winter of Our Discontent. Exactly. And that's such a disservice. And again, why these plays should be viewed singularly because not only do you get in that Henry VI Part Three soliloquy, yeah, I'm going to be evil now and I'm going to, here's my plans because I can't be a lover, I'll be a villain. Mm-hmm. But you get that human moment as well at the beginning. You know, why it's basically uh, Edmund's God stand up for bastard speech. Why mm-hmm. base? Why am I so derided? Why do I work so hard? And at the end, I'm defined by this deformity. You don't get the humanity in Richard III's speech, but you do hear, and yes. it's why the villain turn actually works instead of just being, all right, I'm a villain now, let's carry on. And it's it's more shocking, and but it also contextualizes him. Because, and this is why, getting Ron Cook for a full play before Now is the Winter of Our Discontent, he is not evil incarnate. Of if you open with now is the winter of our discontent and that's your introduction, this is a demon walking on stage. That is a devil. Seeing Ron Cook love his father and his brother and lose them and swear vengeance and kill and then just like, well now what? Okay, I got one more war. Okay, now what? Now what? Well, I guess I'll be evil. It makes more sense. It's a human tragedy of just like war brought out the worst in this person and left, made him into a monster. It's that question that now there 
I did once read a critic who believed that Shakespeare was a firm believer of a type of Locke like or no not Locke Hobbesian determinism now he's pre-Hobbes but of that just your true nature will reveal itself eventually and that's certainly a way you can read the way Richard is presented in Henry the sixth part three but I don't believe that because throughout history there are plenty of stories of people that tra- changed and for goodness sakes Shakespeare famously did it with Henry V, that people change. Yeah, I'll agree with you there. I don't think that there's, I mean, Shakespeare leans into the predeterminism from time to time, including in Richard III and most notably in uh, Macbeth. I don't think you get that in Henry VI Part Three. I think that you you can follow his story as, as a more human one. Well, I'm saying that it's it's the it's the great Walter White question of like, was this always you? Like, was this always you, or did like the events like make you this way? And that's like the great question. Mm. And so like, that's a bit Richard as well of that. Okay, did the, did the war make you this way, or were you always going to be this jerk? And we'll never know, but it, it's worth at presenting and i think that's why like henry the sixth part three is vital to understanding richard the third and i did once hear a critic and i don't disagree the play would be much more popular if it was called rich the third part one instead of henry the sixth part three yes however so i'm not giving up this argument richard the third has a completely different thesis than Henry the Sixth Part Three when it comes to Richard as a character. I I feel that, yet, that we are in the fourth part of a cycle throughout all of Richard the Third, so I can't really agree with you on that. It's just he more and more harps on like I'm just not like I'm not shaped for this era except to be evil. So I'll be evil. Right, so you you start Richard. I know we're jumping ahead, but you start Richard III with the recycling of the soliloquy from Henry the Sixth, Part Three, written better, yes, but I think it is a weaker speech. But after that point, Richard's whole event is well gaining the throne, right, and <laughs> he creates these plots and schemes that is more reminiscent of York from part two, as you noted mm-hmm. last time, but isn't Richard from Henry the sixth part three, Richard in Henry the sixth part three is the man of action. He isn't really a scheme. Like the one scheme he pulls off in this play part three is so stupid. The, the, um, so Edward the fourth has been, captured and is being held at the archbishop's bishop's place and richard comes up with this brilliant plan where they're going to go and free edward and they do by just hiding out on this house that they've got a signal for edward to come by while hunting and they basically say hey edward we're here to grab you huntsman you're not going to stop us no cool let's go and that's the the brilliance of richard's scheming and so to go from that and i think that i don't know you can write that off as 
poor writing, sure. But I think that that moment shows Richard as the man of action. He is only focused on what's immediately ahead of him, and he will just get things done, but not put too much thought into it. To go from that to the Richard III version of him, it's so night and day that I find it hard to to connect them as a unified play. We, we are getting a bit too ahead. All I'll say for that for, for a preview is, well, that's his goal is to get the crown. And is like, that's his action. Everything I'm doing, I'm doing to get the crown, to get the crown, get the crown, get the crown. And even, but then just like before, it's like, well, when do you stop? It's like, okay, now I kill the prince, kill my wife, kill him. Kill all these other people's like, uh, do you have to? Do you have to kill all those people? And just by the end, like, I'm alone and I'm haunted by all the people that have killed. Because I'm I never stopped. And that's Richard's tragedy, but we'll get to that soon, we promise. Fair enough. Where did we leave off with part three? Um, so, so no, but we talked about, yeah, vengeance transforming Richard and the wonderful transformation of Richard, this great story of Richard in this play. But it's still... So one thing, okay, a little sidebar, but also to talk about this. This play is notorious, slash, in my opinion, awesome, in that it has four battles. But every battle despite like that lofty number of being the Henry, the Shakespeare's play with the most battles in it. Every battle depicted is consequential. Every battle, a major character dies. In, in the first battle, York dies in the second battle. Clifford dies in the third battle. Warwick dies. In the fourth battle, Prince Edward dies. Every battle has major consequences. And we feel the repercussions. And everyone gets a speech when they die. Yeah, this play is big on death speeches. Most of them are good. They're also a bit notorious. And I think Shakespeare kind of learned and made fun of himself for it afterwards. But... Have you read Hamlet? <laughs> Nobody death speeches like Hamlet. No, that's true. I just mean, just... Well, I always interpret Bottoms, or no, Pyramus's death as his parody, as Shakespeare's self-parody of Warwick's death. Interesting. I haven't thought of that one. Of just Warwick somehow gives a death speech and then could have a death conversation. Oh, yeah, he does, doesn't he? Hamlet does too, though. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an interesting thing because, yeah, you're right that the battles Shakespeare isn't great at writing battles, in my opinion, and obviously, you know, visual limitations plays a huge part into that. But in this play. The battles are framed through death speeches. That's that's how we get a sense of the the magnitude. And yeah, I, I agree that it works extremely well. Um, it I, makes. I will admit, for the visual effects limitations, some of the like the obvious mirroring 
for the Battle of, of Towton, it was still pretty cool. It looked pretty nice in that way. Oh, no, I don't mean Howell's production. Uh, I think, she, yeah, I think she pulled it off very well in this play. Uh, I meant the 16th slash 17th century limitations. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, staging. That's why the battle scenes are on paper more ambitious than they you know, appear on stage, which, of course, you know, is called yeah. attention to at the start of Henry V. That's the <laughs> whole point of that. That great apology. Exactly. But, yeah, well, I mean, the, there must have been at one point an apology for Towton because that's until the Battle of Somme, it was the greatest loss of life in British history in a single battle. And they fought during a blizzard, too. Which, they strangely give the snow to Tewkesbury, but either way, it's a very effective visual to make that battle distinct and memorable in yeah. Howell's direction. And I think she really wanted to lean into the winter of our discontent bit with Tewkesbury. <laughs> That's my guess for why that mm-hmm. one is set in winter. Yeah. So maybe this is a good point as we talk about Towton to go back to Henry VI and Peter Benson's overall performance. I've just Benson. Yes, this is Henry VI Part Three. Is it, ironically, it took the three plays before Shakespeare gave Henry VI really a soliloquy of his own to really. Because other than that, most of his his speeches are just him whining before then. And just a real beautiful contemplative about the nature of power. And So Many Hours is a wonderful speech. It's You can see echoes of, of what Richard II will say about time wasting him. You can also see a little bit of, of the scepter dial in a way in terms of so many hours is a bit deceptive of a speech because just like just like this scepter dial it's this long speech of beauty of just celebrating the pastoral life and how much he loves the idea of of a very predictable small life but it the closing parts of the speech are what make it a gut punch and make it a twist and like compared to being a king which feels like a gilded cage where i'm always looking over my head being a king is awful yeah it's also very reminiscent of uh corin's speech and as you like it um, earn that i eat you know envy no man's good etc etc um I, like I said, it's, it's my second favorite soliloquy. Oddly enough, my first favorite is Richard's tower speech from Richard II. I, whatever that says about me and the <laughs> anxiety of time loss, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to psychoanalyze myself here. But I think that, yeah, the, the speech coming, I don't know, not exactly at halfway through the play, but in a turning point in the play begins with the notion of, I can't remember the exact wording, but... Now the battle goes this way, and then it goes the other way, and Henry's basically <laughs> pointing out to the audience, yeah, this, 
these 10 years that we're compressing into three hours is all about the fact that everything is shifting and there is no winning because all winning is is temporary versus the ordered, measured, peaceful, productive life of of the shepherd. And that's where the so many hours comes in that it's that there is order, there is predictability, there is structure, which is something that Henry as a character never got a chance to have. No. He never well, he was king at nine months old. Yeah. He, yeah, he was king at nine months, but he never got the prolonged period of of peace that I mean Henry the Fourth didn't really either, especially if you go by Shakespeare's version. <laughs> um but Henry the Fifth certainly had his his moments when he wasn't fighting in France. And <laughs> Henry the Sixth, that's all he wants. He just wants this peaceful life. <laughs> and that's why Again, we call him a weak king, but there's so much strength in in that speech. Um, and then even in his later decision to give up the crown to Warwick, uh, I think that that shows a certain amount of strength as well that you don't get from any of the other kings. Well, but then that's the it's the dichotomy is that and this is that that speech is a great commentary on the nature of power, which. All these people are coveting power, and the one person who has the power nominally just does not want it. That's the irony. That's the yeah. tragedy that right there. It's like he's the only one that really understands, like, this is awful. Like, why do people want this? Like, this is death and, like, instability and never being able to trust anyone. Like, why would you want this? And earlier when he – and the and so that's part of the thing. of Benson captures the, the tragedy of – of Henry the sixth of being very much a good man. And like so many hours is, is the speech of a moral caring man. And it's a, a, a terrible thing about society that I think Shakespeare captures. Like, why is this guy weak? Like loving your neighbor, being a good pious person. Like, isn't that what you're supposed to be? Like, why are, do we like value valor so much over, over peace, the peacemakers and the peace lovers. Why? But at the same time, like the tragedy of of how he just just immediately like I will just give him a stern wagging of my finger at York and that'll solve everything. And how when he sees York's head, he is just honest and is like, I'm really sad about this. And like, please, God, please, 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 it's not my fault. Don't blame me for this. Yeah. And it's just like Margaret and Clifford out loud saying, like, you can't say that in front of your troops. <laughs> it's true. Like, you can't it's... say that in front of the people that are fighting for you, jerk. And it's like, if you're going to be so, like, uninspiration, it, uninspiring, like, go away. It's like, well, I should stay. He's like, then like rally the troops. I was like, I can't. And later on, like when Warwick has done everything he do- does to give Henry back the crown, it's me like, no, I don't want the crown. Like Warwick, you take it. And just what? But I think yeah, you, you pointed out that there's the dichotomy there, but 
Where, like, you, have to, you have to weigh his that's, that's the earmarks of a good person, but but even that makes the gray because. But how much is your own moral well-being supersede your duties as a king? You don't want to be king, but you are king. So I don't know. Yeah, that's fair. I don't. I think that moment of him once again giving up the crown this time to Warwick does carry a bit of a different weight than his giving it up in the opening scene to York. I think that, in a sense, even though he's doing the same thing, there is, because of everything that comes in between, there is a bit of reframing that it's, mm-hmm. you know, especially post-Richard's speech, which really highlights the evilness of coveting the, the crown. Now mm-hmm. we can see henry's continued abdication as a strength and not a weakness it's moral it certainly is moral i don't deny that it's just it's it's the dichotomy of the times he lives in (laughs) true which i think is where jumping ahead to just finish off the henry part of of the play with the with his death um i i love this scene it's one of my favorite scenes in the play um henry's so the battle's over margaret's forces have been defeated mm-hmm. the three brothers have killed prince edward and richard goes off to kill henry the sixth and henry is just enjoying his time in the tower getting to yeah. finally read which is what he always wanted to do yep. and it's this quiet moment and here i'll pause if you happen to be watching this on britbox through amazon as i did be careful so here's my story it was it was late at night i'm watching this play and it gets to this amazing scene that i love and richard and henry are having this very intense conversation and this is henry at his most intense still mild and controlled but intense and he has this line about so the shepherd flees and leaves the sheep to the wolves and then suddenly this loud static sound and this flash of red and i was legitimately freaked out yeah because i was so engrossed it was late i had the volume way up and ah it is Uh. terrifying (laughs) <laughs> it really I had the same thing happen to me. That's, that's so weird. Well, I I, re, I, I rewound it just to be like, was that yeah. just like my TV? Right, I did the same. <laughs> I was like, no, no, that's just the broadcast version. So obviously a mistake, but at the same time, maybe not. Maybe that's just Howell's way of saying this is how you're supposed to feel watching this scene. I think really, it's really get you into Henry's mindset by freaking <laughs> the hell out of you. But it's, and I, I almost feel bad. I don't for think Swan. Jane Howell is Andy Kaufman. But. Uh, that'd be fun. <laughs> but no. that aside, the conversation between Henry and Richard before Richard kills Henry is, is fantastic. And on the one hand, it's your standard prophecy curse mm-hmm. henry brings up richard he was you know, 
born with teeth and the, the wolf howled at his birth or whatever it is. And then you prophesize that Richard will continue to cause death and destruction, which spoilers mm-hmm. he does. So the serpents, it's all very standard, but because of who these two people are so diametrically opposed mm-hmm. and because of the writing and the speech, it makes it a one of the better showdowns in Shakespeare. Absolutely. Two very different iconic characters and and how wholesome at even at the end as where he is Christ like for all his own self martyrdom of that Henry forgives him as he's being stabbed. Yeah. And even though he says like I know you won't but I still hope you won't be what I what I predict you will be. And so just beautiful but and and also that that prophecy like enrages Richard and that killing Henry is what firmly finally fully breaks him to be like now I have nothing else because all I was fighting for was York and now the house of Lancaster is dead 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 I guess now I'll be evil yeah and he's already like that, 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 that speech is is I think the magnificent final transformation mm-hmm. and it is a chilling speech, and Ron Cook does a magnificent job with that too. I'm just like, oh boy. And just later on, just so Judas kissed Christ. Just like, oof. And you said great final shots. We're not at all done with talking, but boy, oh boy, that final shot. Brilliant final shot for Richard III, for Richard of Gloucester. Are we talking at the end of uh, Henry VI, Part Three? Yeah. Of just yes. what held us. I, I actually, I love Everyone this. beginning the, the, the parties and, and sound trumpets and joy, our lasting joy, and just Richard unable to be a part of that and just running away. Yeah. Side note. Apropos of absolutely nothing. I love the dance. <laughs> just the very medieval, <laughs> manly dance that they, they do at the end there as Richard's yeah. walking away. It's delightful. It is. It's it's wonderful. That's why, like, oh come on, Richard, don't be a stick in the mud. Join in. Join in. But yeah. yeah. But he can't. And then as I mentioned last time, I don't know if we're moving on, but the fact that he walks out of the room and then immediately at the start of Richard the third, we see him enter the next room that this is absolutely two seconds later. This is happening simultaneously. It's so fantastic. I love it. I love it. Although for whatever well, just reason, as, as, as this one for Henry six part three, it, it clearly is like seconds after the, the battle at, at um, St. Albans. I think there's supposed to be a bit more time passed just based on the, the back and forth in the opening scene that it seems like the Yorkers have had more victories than St. Albans. And I think you could definitely make the case for 
Mm -hmm. slightly more time has passed just like between part one and part two you have a little bit more time passed um three to four is literal shot for shot it's (laughs) a direct transition and that's the intent of of that yep and i i think i don't want to read too much into her intents but i think it is because richard the third does get separated from the Henry VI plays, and it is often its own standalone play. And while I'll still defend that, Howell's vision was very clearly, no, this is directly connected to the, what you just saw. Here's my way of showing you that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, we'll get into America's wonderful release of DVD release of the hit of, um, of the BBC Shakespeare and Guess which plays they didn't include in the release of the histories. I'm going to guess these, but I don't actually know. Yeah, they did not release any of the Henry the Sixth part, Henry the Sixth trilogy, but they released Richard the Third in isolation. I, yeah, I mean, here's a fair time as any probably talking about. The more time I spend with Richard the Third as a play, the more I don't get why it has the reputation it does well well that's a great conversation we'll have next week (laughs) fair enough so i so after Towton and henry the sixth wonderful speech and just wonderful performance by peter benson we get we get the hint of let me get his name so i I'll, i'll butcher it but brian henry six part three Playing which character? The the actor who plays Edward. Oh yeah, I don't remember. Edward the Fourth. It's um okay. IMDB. That's so everyone listening knows. So um while you're finding the name, a bit of a oh. shout out to said actor. Uh so Edward the Fourth in this play is very much the suave, you know, magnanimous. Everybody loves me because I'm a mixture of charismatic and I probably think I'm hotter than I am type. And I think that's yeah his not sliminess. That's not the right word, but that kind of bro undertone is conveyed very well in this production he is not portrayed as the great leader that some productions i've seen have have done oh no 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 not at all well i okay so brian prothero yeah so okay one complimenting just a brilliant casting yeah in terms of just how these actors look the actors playing edward george and richard are all like tall medium short and they all have a bit of a different build to them with um the actor playing playing edward brian prothero being a bit of a more slender wiry build and richard having the most stockiest kind of build like that makes them look visually distinct. And that's especially important because complimenting on the visuals, 
the only hint of color is the previous generation. So only Warwick on the Yorkist side has any real color in him, in his, in his armor, and in what he wears. I mean, there's a little bit of green. There's like there's, but the colors are so muted by this point, and the yeah. set is just devastated. And so that's why when you're in France brilliant direction point like suddenly like france is very colorful yeah like, lewis's court is great and then yeah lewis's court is doing fine i think i mentioned last time anthony brown has his hands all over this tetralogy he appears in every play as <laughs> different roles um twice in part two lewis is his best uh he is like the character of lewis which is intentionally mispronounced in in Shakespeare's play is very, you know, the way the English depicted the French mm-hmm. tongue in cheek, full on Monty Python in some ways. Mm-hmm. And Anthony Brown doesn't do a ridiculous French accent, fortunately, <laughs> I think for the best, but he is just enjoying himself. Even when he's yeah. mad in that scene, he is having a lot of fun in the scene. He is a smug, smug jerk. Yeah. In part two, he played uh, Alexander Iden, or Eden, mm-hmm. depending on how you want. And I, I do like that double casting. I don't read anything into it, but mm-hmm. both those characters have that same kind of smug righteousness to them, which is mm-hmm. fun. Well, didn't he also play um, Margaret's mother or father? Yes. Yes. That's who he was in part one. Right. So, like... A bit of smugness in each of his characters. Well, then he was Radcliffe, who was probably not. <laughs> okay, well. And so, yeah, that's a bit of the double casting. I mean, the one more distra- distracting one for me was like, oh, the actor who played the Duke of Somerset and all these other ones is is not playing the, the third Duke of Somerset. Right. For whatever reason. Now he's playing, now he's playing Oxford. Well, all right, fine. Fair, fair enough. He'll eventually finally become Richmond and suddenly be a real nice guy, the savior, after playing the a sort of villain. Yeah. But to the the point you're making, yeah, the the distinction between the the muted colors of the three sons and the way the set is falling apart, which you don't see in France, I think. Yeah, I, I think you're right in that the distinction between them, especially Edward and George, because Richard will always be portrayed yeah. differently. And you know, Howell takes the classical. There was a um, a very old RSC production which introduced mm-hmm. the kind of club-footed Richard, the the galumphing mm-hmm. uh, version of Richard, and that's what Howell's direction does as well. Um, but the way Edward and George are contrasted, because those two can sort of blend into each other sometimes. Mm -hmm. It works really well. And just, but what Prothero really captures, and I do like that, that bro energy. Yeah. He brings that is immediately. And it's so surprising because theoretically it, you could not necessarily see that, but once we go come back from the act break, 
of just immediately Edward the Fourth's pride of already we saw his of just like this is what brings him down and this is what causes the rebellion against him is this ridiculous stubbornness and pride to him of just believing he's untouchable and believing like I am Edward like that that therefore he is just like nothing can stop him from be, still being king and just like, you've yeah. made the worst like I thought Henry was bad for a bad marital alliance but you've somehow like topped him well, that's an interesting parallel because, yes, Edward does exactly what Henry did in terms of promise to one wife and then marrying another. Key differences: one, it wasn't Henry that did that; it was it was Suffolk that mm-hmm. really perpetrated the marriage to Margaret for his own aim. Versus Edward, he doesn't have any external pressure. Nobody mm-hmm. is on the sidelines goading him to to marry uh, the widow gray both richard and george speak out against it but edward is edward and he won't be told what to do and it's not even so suffolk does what he does because he falls madly in love with margaret and we see that through his soliloquy in in entering the six part one suffolk is not just out for you know, out to pick up chicks. He specifically falls in love with Margaret and has to orchestrate the marriage to Henry because he is married and this is the only way he can be with her. With her, You don't get that from Edward. He is not madly in love with the widow Grey. She just is right here versus his promised wife who is all the way out in, in France. Why go up for steak when you have burgers at home which is a terrible way of phrasing that when we're talking about women and i don't mean it that way but that is edward as a character he is yes. if, if she's in front of me here's who i'm going after and it, well and it, and what what she says and what he immediately like takes up is like just like like i may not be like worthy enough to be your wife but i'm not gonna be your mistress dude and it's like Fine, I'll marry you. Yeah, that like, is that's the thing. Yeah, originally he just wanted her to be her mistress, and it's like the only way she's gonna agree to this is if I marry her. And I have so little regard. Almost immediately, George, I think it's Richard, points out, "Hey, won't Warwick be pissed when he finds out what you're doing?" And Edward's just, "Yeah, we'll smooth it over. I'll just I'll write a letter to France, and that'll fix everything." Yeah. And that cockiness can sometimes be played very straight and making him seem the likable one. Mm. But yeah, Prother does not do that to his great benefit. No, and that and so that makes all the sons of York are just just like their father, of just like he's got this like pride and stubbornness that York had, like Edward has in droves, and just Good gosh, man, like, like think this through at least a little bit. And just George being this slimy opportunist. I mean, Richard is just silently conniving, but George is open and just sincere and just like, yep, okay, bye-bye. Yeah, that's my problem with, that's my problem with George. I don't know, maybe you can speak to the history part of this, because I don't know anything about <laughs> Clarence's history. My problem with George in this play 
isn't that he abandons Edward. I think that that part of the George plotline is is great. I love the scene with mm-hmm. between him, Warwick, and uh, and Henry. It's a very good scene, but it's his quick return to his to Edward's side. And obviously the motivation is there. Like, yeah, Warwick, do you think that I would actually abandon my father and his legacy? I get that, but it's not written well. The fact that it happens within a few lines, mm-hmm. it, the mo- it, the motivation you really have to reach to to feel it. And I don't know historically, you know, did he was that what he did? Is that accurate? Yeah. Well, I mean, the biggest thing is like in the we can talk a little bit about 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 Warwick in just a bit because I know you really defend him as the most moral one of this play. I do. But Henry Oil Boyd is like and your own theory, which I, I think might be on the money, is that Warwick might have been a, a hometown hero for, for Shakespeare from Stratford. But he is so nice to Warwick. Because once Warwick had made Edward king, he basically expected to be second in command and king in all but name, which some of of the ambassadors to England joked about. Oh, the king, Warwick, I mean Edward. And eventually just Edward was making it clear, along, and the Elizabeth marriage was one of the reasons why the relationship began to sour. And also just because Warwick had good relationship with France and Edward wasn't really interested in a relationship with France. He liked Burgundy more. And that's why he sent off his sister to marry the Earl of Burgundy or Duke of Burgundy or whatever the title is. And so she... And so just slowly, like, the relationship deteriorated and it got to the point where Warwick was like, okay, sick of this. I'm making George king. Do you want that, George? Yep, mm. I do. And I just want that so much, I'm going to marry your daughter. Warwick, sounds great to me. And they rebelled, but their first rebellion failed because Edward didn't run away. So they were just like, huh. Well, if you don't run away, then we can't. Crown George, so this is awkward. And then they tried to rebel again, and this time they ran away from France. And eventually, while away in France, that's when they allied with 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 Lancaster, with Margaret. And they came back to England, but George was just realizing, like, he got this nominal, like, okay, you are now the secondary heir. But, you know, Prince Edward is alive and just got married to Warwick's other daughter, so you're now secondary heir again. And just George was like, secondary heir again? Well, then at this point, it's just better for me to ally back with Edward. Okay. So George was this really treacherous guy, and he did not get any better. We'll get to Richard III, but he really makes George much nicer than he really was. He was always this treacherous turd. 
Fair. I wish there was a way to have shown that. Obviously, Henry the Part Three is is crammed. You couldn't fit in another plot line. I just wish there was a way to show that George's turn back to Edward was one of desperation and not filial duty. I guess uh, well, that I mean, that undercuts him. Filial duty is is a good theme. It is. It just, it just like, like I said, it, it just doesn't land in this moment. It, it's not as great, I will admit. Um, okay, for my own direction, a preview for my graphic novel, but what I suggested was that right when um, the three sons scene, Richard cuts his hand to make a holy oath to avenge their father, and Edward and George follow sooth. And later on, Edward has Warwick also do the act, and so the scene where they, where Warwick and and his um and so the that scarred hand becomes a running motif, and then I would eventually have, when Warwick defects from York, he also looks at his scarred hand, and later on when he makes reference to I would rather cut this hand, than acknowledge, Edward as king, he is pointing to his scarred hand. And so what gets Richard to make George reconsider his defection is he shows the scarred hand. And that causes George to remember the oath. Okay, that's a nice touch. So that was my idea. But, yeah, no, no, I do agree, yes. Well, that's part of, like, cramming history in. Yeah. And also to make it so that... that Richard is the worst of the bunch. But again, though. Yeah. But still, George is still not, not a great guy because he betrays. Like he and that's why like his death in Richard the Third is like with the context of Henry VI Part Three, it's like it sucks that why you're dying, but you're not a good guy. It's true. And again, taking Richard the Third as a solitary play, George doesn't serve any purpose except for a stepping stone for Richard and he doesn't really exist as his own character in Richard the third as a solitary play versus in this play where he is start to finish a fully fleshed out character who's just lacking in strong motivation at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess we could talk about work then. Yeah, I, I will defend him. Because I, yes, the if you if you're plotting the the tragedy of Warwick and his downfall, then maybe it is his fatal flaw is he is too rigid. But mm-hmm. I I think that he begins the play again taking this as its own piece, even forgetting anything that happened in part two. He begins this play as York's staunchest loyalist as. But also as the the person maintaining order at the end of the the first scene after the deal between Henry and York has been made, Warwick says, "I'm going to go resecure London and get everything back into shape and make sure everyone is orderly." And throughout the entirety of him supporting Edward, his whole thing has been, "Let's get 
things back to the way they should be. And for him, the way they should be is basically Henry V times. Let's get back to a secure England. Let's secure a relationship with France and make sure we, you know, we marry you off to Bona. Edward, you basically become de facto king again in France. All is good. And so when that crumbles, when Edward, in the context of this play, when Edward backstabs him, he realizes that Edward isn't the the force of order, that Edward is just following the exact same path that Henry did, and that, you know, this chaos is just going to continue recycling. And so, in a sense, saying what you said with the historical George work is, well, if this is going to be a mess, I might as well side with Henry and show Edward that he is nothing without me and that Again, I'm going to restore order, but through the person who will actually listen to me, not this horny child. <laughs> and so I think from start to finish, and then we see Warwick, you know, his take on Edward and eventually lose. And from start to finish, he is the moral center, or if you don't want to use the word moral, then the the voice of order and, and reason and everything he does is order and reason yes he's kind of known as the kingmaker or the king Mm -hmm. and you know and all but a name but at least within the context of these plays he just never once makes a grab for the crown he is always what is best for england what is best for the people i can see that reading that's a wonderful reading on the character and i can i can see you seeing that performance from what I see, both from the play, but also from definitely what... Let me get the, the name of the actor. Oh, I can't remember his name either. Great performance, too. Um, so many good ones. Rod Beecham. There you go. What what Beecham brings is... is, And I think what Hal's going for, personally, is the knight. And just that he is absolutely the knight. And he is... Oh, no, sorry, that's the wrong... Earl of Warwick. <laughs> Wait, no, he was he was the Earl of Warwick in all of them, wasn't he? No, 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 no. That that like the the article I'm looking at, it was it first went to the Henry the Fourth Earl of Warwick. Ah, uh, yes. Okay, so Mark Wing Davy. Sorry, sorry, Mr. Wing Davy. So, so what Mark Wing Davy is doing, I think, is just the the knight, and that's also why he later plays Sir James Tyrrell, I think is he's going for the night and i feel it, there's almost a bit of of northumberland in henry the fourth part one in that sense of entitlement of of as he's tearing up the letter and is infuriated and defects to margaret's side it's out of rage of like i gave you the crown i gave like i fought and bled for edward and this is how he treats me like he dishonors me it's all about him in his honor. He cares most about that. Now, that honor is a good shield because it makes him theoretically just consistent and that like everything I do is is for my honor and York was the honorable right side and then well, if Edward is not an honorable man, then I will go back to a more honorable side. But yeah, he is. So I, I don't think. I don't more... think the two. Uh, I and think the two views are mutually exclusive. I think that you can still say 
yes, he feels the the wounded honor for sure, but it's not strictly here's what Edward did to me. It's here's what Edward did to everyone. Here's this mess that Edward created, and that's what enrages him, that he had built in his mind and in the people's mind, he built Edward as York's son, and York was the ultimate hero, and Edward in this moment, is not the vision of York that he had. Is not the savior of England. Mm-hmm. He's just a child. I can see it. I'm not saying I'm not seeing you, your interpretation. I'm just sharing mine, which is that he's just, he's, this is great. This is the greatness of art, of that Howell is, does such a great job and Wing Davy does such a fantastic performance. We can see two different sides and we're still agreeing, though, that's a great performance. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> And that's that scene, uh, Warwick in that scene, he he plays it very well. But I mean, he also says like he's not really interested in in Henry at all. It's just that his honor has been disgraced, and that's why he betrays Edward. Fair. And so so I think he's a bit selfish. I mean, understandably selfish. But and that that's why I question and why he's a wonderful great character is like. Okay, you're an honorable man. You focus on your honor, but you're about to plunge the realm into more war. How honorable is that? Well, what's the alternative? Because in his view, letting Edward reign you could perpetuates the same problems that <laughs> he's lived through his whole life, basically. Or well, however, yeah. I don't know how old he's supposed to be. So letting Edward just continue to reign in peace isn't. The, the solution mm-hmm. I mean it takes his death to where he finally concurs with with Henry VI in what way of just the beautiful final line of his death scene before he then has a death conversation of that what is rule but earth and dust and just that and live we how we may, yet die we must. Earth pump and rule, but earth and dust. Live we how we may, yet die we must. It's a great rhyming heroic couplet, Shakespeare. Wonderful job. Wonderful yeah. job. Should have ended it there. <laughs> yeah. Well, why do you think I, I edited out the conversation when for my abridgment? <laughs> Good move. It just, Yeah. Although, like, the death conversation isn't a bad either, necessarily, if, like, if you want that to be his, his final moments. We're just no, like, it's just... It, we're just like, I, like, work, oh, no, we could have run away. I was like, I was not going to run away ever. I'm like, I know. Like, where's my brother? Your brother's dead. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I, I think there is something, too, that, yeah, he needed to, just that final moment of heroism... So, getting to the final battle of Tewkesbury. So, where's the humanity in Margaret? Her, because even within Henry VI Part Three, we go through the gamut of emotions, and we see her as this hard warrior. We see her as this sadistic person. We see her as rightful vengeance in some ways. We also see her hopelessly trying to rally the troops. 
that scene before her final scene is just as much a great showcase of of acting of just trying to give the rousing speech but it not being the rousing speech that's such a magnificent job by shakespeare of just like yeah of, of being able to write something where you know it's not the rousing speech where it is trying to be the rousing speech but it's not every time i read or watch this play i i forget that bit i kind of forget that their army is just randomly destroyed by sea and that's how no no she uses that as a metaphor to say that like because and it's such a wonderfully directed scene by howell of seeing of seeing the corpse of warwick and then all of oxford and somerset's forces coming in to join they're all broken tired and demoralized and so no, These but it wasn't the sorry, not, but wasn't like, the, the French forces were actually destroyed at sea, weren't they? Like all of Louis's Louis's reinforcements. No, no, she's using that as an as a metaphor. I gotta take a look at that. I think I don't know about that. Uh, I'll yeah, trust she, you on this because I don't have time to look at it right now. But she, she's using it as a metaphor because she says like, okay, look, I know, I know, Bork's dead, but we've got Oxford. Oh yeah, absolutely yes. At that point, yes, she We've got uses Somerset the, the captain and, metaphor, but I, I think it's also and, literal. And but she but she also like emphasizes that like look oh and by the way like do not expect like the sea is is the York brothers they're not going to forgive you people so there's no escape so you have to fight with us no matter what. It's. It's a great like failure to rouse the troops, whereas Edward kind of can rally the troops and get them jazzed up. And great direction by Howell also. I don't remember there being Edward giving a, a pre-war speech, but just having it in earshot and in the text, Margaret cries, and you can understand completely why she cries hearing the speech. And what Julia Julia Foster brings of just that devastation because she knows she knows it's over. She absolutely knows it's over. But she's still trying to just we have to fight anyway. And just gives this final, final speech that is as decent of a rallying speech as she can muster up of just Henry's taken. We've got to fight. Please, let's fight. Yeah. Okay. You may be right about the whole thing being a metaphor. (laughs) Give you that one. Yes. Uh, Regardless, that is uh, a fantastic speech that And then Richard III basically does the same thing, just prefer his death as well. His final war speech is very much a, you know, we're we're not doing well here, but we, and he tries to just rally them for one final battle. Yeah. Um, Well, yeah, absolutely great. The, compare that to Henry V compare that it's just it's fascinating 
You mean St. Crispin's Day, right? Like, yeah, compare that to St. Crispin's Day of just what what Margaret can only muster up, like, as she's crying. Yeah. I'm just like, all right, this is our last hope. Come on. Let's go to it. And then the snow and the battle and devastating bloodiness. Compare this to part one. Remember all the way back in part one where fighting was kind of fun and harmless? Yeah. Like, this doesn't look harmless at all. This doesn't look like fun. This looks like hell. It's true. And Tewksbury does, you mentioned earlier. It gets the more cinematic gruesomeness that actually belonged to to Towton. Yeah. Uh, from a narrative perspective, this being the final battle. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, and then you get Margaret at her weakest. And so, and this is part of what I mean by the fascinatingness of this play and why I, boy, oh boy, you can't see the hand gestures I'm doing right now, but boy, oh boy, I really do love this play of just the the grayness. Because with that, that scene of Margaret being, of torturing, torturing, York with the blood, with the tissue soaked in the blood of his youngest child. You'd think, like, there's no way I'm ever going to feel anything for this woman. Like, this woman is awful. And yet that speech she makes right before the battle and her crying. I feel something right there. And then to watch a mother have to watch her son be murdered before her eyes and to beg her for her death and them saying they won't do her that kindness. They want her to suffer being alive. Yeah. That's not catharsis. That is not a cathartic revenge story or moment. I don't... I am fairly certain Shakespeare doesn't want you to feel like justice. It's just like, no, that's awful. Two wrongs do not make a right. It is the father and the son killing, but in a way that's dramatically much less ham-fisted, it feels, of just that, that is awful. I do agree with you. And I want to believe that Shakespeare doesn't want us siding with the sons in that moment. And I absolutely believe that he does a good job of humanizing Margaret and bringing up the sincerity. At the same time, you know, two scenes later, after the Richard Killing Henry interlude, we get Edward celebrating. And the way that it's written, the the whole passing around of his child and restoring mm-hmm. order. I don't know. Outside of Richard's aside, I think we are meant to see this as a positive rather than the fact that they just killed one Edward and are now celebrating and kissing another Edward, both calling them Ned, but Margaret and Edward refer to him as he- Ned. And there's this amazing parallel, which you kind of have to read Edward as the good guy to 
fully make sense mm-hmm. of. I don't think so because even though Edward is the quick to feel guilt over what he did, he made the first blow. And that's part of like what like and Richard III is like Richard doesn't lie, Richard III. I wasn't the one who, who stabbed him first. Nor arguably is he the one who makes the killing blow. That's George. George gives the killing blow. So the sin is on all of them, but who stabbed first? It was Edward. Edward's the first one to stab Prince Edward, a defenseless teenager, right in front of his mother. Defenseless, yeah, but he was being a shit. Let's be honest. Yeah. Edward, Prince Edward, he is he's an awful person. Yeah, he's, he's, <laughs> bloody, he's bloody and creepy, but yeah. Which, pretty accurate to history, but yes. But even so, even so, he's defenseless. It's true. And I think that, again, there's a certain brilliance on keeping the focus on Margaret in that moment. Mm-hmm. That this is... Absolutely, Margaret's scene and Edward slash George slash Richard's part is almost incidental. They are just the the instruments that delivers that final blow to Margaret after the only time she suffered before was holding the head of Suffolk, and then she was resolved to essentially never let that happen again to kill in order to protect her own or to kill in order mm-hmm. to not yeah. be threatened and she is made so helpless yeah. by having to watch watch her kids and that we stay in this moment that she has such a long speech when she's going through the three sons and begging for death yeah it's painful and fosters yeah Again, just like the emotions and the pathos, the raw pathos. Yeah. It's, just, it's so palpable. And even living with this play for over a year, just like it, that got to me, seeing it performed like that. And just like, wow. And that's why I think these are the definitive version of these plays. I mean, I'd love to see some other versions, of course, don't get me wrong. But like, for all the flaws and the dated cinematography and bad picture quality... That is just, you can't, the raw emotions you get. No. You and you don't get anything like that in Hollow Crown. Margaret no. is not Margaret in that series. Oh, I like what, what, what she does with that series, but it's a different yeah. take. Yeah. I mean, I liked her more as Cleopatra, but that's me. Um, so... Well, maybe I, I don't know. May I mean, certainly as you you know, Alex, like they, they the audiences knew their history as they were watching Hand the Six Part Three. So they knew like uh that kid that baby's not going that baby doesn't have a good history in his future. True. There is absolutely some of that. And I mean that's that's kind of a little bit watching um Oh gosh, I'm just 
there's plenty of like history movies out there where just like where all these loving speeches of like, oh, now my kids are just going to inherit everything and be really happy. And we just kind of know like, oh, uh, well. And that certainly could be on people's minds as they were watching that scene. But also just those asides by, by Richard just to know like, uh-oh, uh-oh. And... Howell's direction, like that speech he gives, that's almost like justification and like celebration. But it's also part of what what Howell goes for is like selling like, okay, been through a lot, but the Wars of the Roses is over. Like here's a list of all the people I had to kill to get here, but I've got a son and heir. It's all set. Wars of the Roses is over, right? Let's party. And then just to end it on that final image of Richard not able to join in the party. Yeah. Brilliant direction. One point to maybe close this off and set up Richard III. Um, at the end of the final Margaret scene, Edward says... When deciding what they're going to do with Margaret, he decides to pack her back off to France, give her back to her father, which I believe is historically what happened. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, in Richard III, she doesn't. She just hangs around the hangs around the castle, <laughs> the palace, whatever, um, just as this weird ghostly figure. Mm-hmm. Which, on the one hand, retrospectively, is is absolutely brilliant. But what it shows from a more practical perspective is the people must have loved Margaret. There must have been some thought of, oh, I can't. I, I accidentally wrote this character out. We gotta, we gotta bring her back. Good thing <sighs> she didn't die, because now it's easy to just forget that. Let's pack her up to France bit and have her hang around here. Um, I have a feeling that yeah, there was a bit of fan reaction you know the same way the love of Falstaff created Henry the fourth part two the love of Margaret kept her around for Richard the third uh, despite not actually being there I adore that I so want to believe that's true it would that, be fun that is fun let's end on that thought of just that that in Shakespeare's day she was so popular that Shakespeare ignored history and brought her back for Richard the third that is great. She's the dynamic character of this tetralogy, and boy, oh boy, yeah. She gets one more play to be a, an amazing new turn as a revenant. So we'll talk about that, and and we'll we'll talk a lot about the historical license for Richard III. See you then. Bye.